from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are this you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 5th. Today, a campaign against alleged voter fraud targets immigrants, a national platform for Stacey Abrams, and recreating a forgotten era. If you think back to just after the 2016 election, we heard President Trump complain a lot about voter fraud. People that have died 10 years ago are still voting. Illegal immigrants are voting. So many cities are corrupt and voter fraud is very, very common. Those accusations from the president and the larger outcry from Republicans about voter fraud were part of the reason why the state of North Carolina decided to launch a comprehensive voting audit. So the State Board of Elections wanted to do their due diligence and really look at the results. And so they did this really, really deep dive of an audit. Amy Gardner covers voting for The Post. And she's been reporting on that audit, which had all kinds of interesting and noteworthy conclusions about small-scale voting issues. And they found potentially hundreds of instances of suspected felon voting. They found 41 instances of suspected non-citizen voting. They found two instances of voter impersonation. Can't remember how many instances, but I think it's single digit they found of duplicate voting. And then the auditors also found something major. The irregularities in Bladen County. In other words, what we learned about after the 2018 results had been going on allegedly in 2016 as well. Since the midterms, the congressional election for North Carolina's 9th district has been in limbo. It's alleged that mail-in ballots from two rural counties, Bladen County and Robeson County, were compromised on election day. A Republican campaign operative is being accused by Democrats of ballot tampering, illegally collecting mail-in ballots and potentially even throwing away ballots for the Democratic candidate. These tactics may have been going on for years. A state board refused to certify the election, and there is still no one in the U.S. House representing North Carolina's 9th District. This is so much bigger than the 9th congressional race right now. So some people assumed that would be the focus of federal prosecutors. But somebody in the U.S. Attorney's Office noticed that audit and decided to focus on one of the five or six bullet points of results that they had. And that was non-citizen voting. Non-citizen voting. The same stuff that President Trump has complained about since he was elected. And they're conducting a massive investigation that continues to involve an enormous amount of resources. The U.S. Attorney's Office has issued subpoenas to state and local agencies for millions of records of foreign-born voters, which North Carolina officials say will amount to a huge amount of time and cost millions of dollars. And Amy says that the decision to focus on this smaller part of the audit about non-citizen voting, rather than election fraud or ballot tampering, says a lot about the priorities of the Trump administration. That is the message that federal prosecutors were getting from the Justice Department and the president from the beginning of this administration. There was a directive that then Attorney General Jeff Sessions sent to all prosecutors that he wanted 
immigrant crimes to be a top priority for federal prosecutors. So this U.S. attorney decides to launch this investigation in North Carolina, looking specifically at people who were not eligible to vote, who did vote in the 2016 presidential election. What did that investigation look like and what did they ultimately find? So we have no idea because U.S. attorneys don't talk about their investigations. Literally nobody from inside that office has told us anything. And we've asked them for comment on multiple occasions. So... We don't know what the investigation looked like. We know that on August 22nd and August 23rd of 2018, 19 alleged non-citizens were rounded up by federal law enforcement. We think it was law enforcement from the Department of Homeland Security. And their wrists were zip-tied, their feet and waists were shackled, they Some of the arrests occurred as early as 4 in the morning. They were driven to courthouses, and they were kept in detention pending a first appearance. And they were charged with? The vast majority of them were charged with voting while alien, which is actually a misdemeanor. And then about half of those were also charged with a felony charge, which is false claim of citizenship. And that stems from the allegation that they had actually signed a voter registration application. And in signing that, you are attesting to your citizenship. So in your reporting, you talked to some of these people and you looked at their cases and like, what, what did they say about why they had voted illegally? Most of them didn't know that what they were doing wasn't proper. One gentleman who was actually sentenced back in the fall his name is Alessandro Canizzaro, is a native of Italy. He actually applied for citizenship back in 2003 and had passed the citizenship test and was going to be sworn in that afternoon in the courthouse or whatever federal building he was in. But there was no room. And so they asked him to come back. They said they'd call him. And they never called. And he called. And they said, not yet. And he called. And they never called him back. That doesn't quite explain why he then went and voted with his family, but it shows a slightly grayer portrait than the one that was shown with the press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office back in August. Nineteen aliens arrested of charges that they voted illegally. Another gentleman said he didn't even fill out a registration form. A voter registration drive came to his door. There was a party at his house. His wife was there and other people were there, and they registered a bunch of people who were there. He was at work. Next thing you know, he gets a card from the local board of elections saying, you're registered. And then he gets, a couple months later, notices, go vote. And he thinks that's what he's supposed to do. Another woman from South Korea, Hyo George, said that she was told that her green card, driver license, and social security card were sufficient to register. And so she did it because she was being told that she should. So, I mean, the lawyers in these cases were very careful not to sort of not take responsibility. The defendants took responsibility for the vote. They pleaded guilty. But at the same time, they were describing in the aggregate a situation where it's more than just the illegal act of the individual who voted. There's a systemic problem that these cases seem to expose where it's easy to register and vote when you're not eligible. 
And that's a subject that neither side, neither the folks who want to root out all voter fraud or the folks who view the efforts to root out voter fraud as voter suppression are addressing. It seems like by making all of these arrests, the U.S. attorney is trying to make a point, right? That like, A, you know, here are 20 people who have voted when they weren't supposed to. There might be many more than that. This is a problem. And B, that like, look how easy it is to register to vote when you're not allowed to. Did all of these arrests really like spread that that message coming from the administration that like people voting when they're not allowed to is a significant problem? Well, I absolutely think that one result of the announcement of the arrests and their prosecution of these individuals sends a signal not to vote if you're not eligible. And, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we don't want people who aren't eligible to vote to vote in our country. And that's a reasonable point of view. You know, you ask whether these prosecutions sort of send a message that this is happening in a large scale. I don't think these prosecutions prove that at all. I think they prove they actually provide at least some evidence that it's not happening in a widespread way. Why does it prove that that it's not happening on a larger scale? I mean, a state board of elections audit using Homeland Security database, DMV database, Department of Corrections database came up with 41 suspected non-citizen voters out of 4.5 million votes cast in 2016. And the prosecutor only prosecuted 20 of those. I would love to ask what happened to the other ones. Why didn't you go for those? So these 20 were the strongest. And of these, we've already discovered five or six that have interesting backstories that make you wonder about just how big of a public, you know, integrity issue this is. Did they find any cases where people were considered non-citizens or considered ineligible to vote when they actually were eligible to vote? Yes. 36. What the audit actually also showed is that there were almost as many people initially flagged as non-citizens who were proven to be citizens who were eligible to vote. 36 was the number compared to 41 who were found to not be eligible. It's also worth noting that at least one and maybe two of those 41 may actually be citizens and their lawyers are going to argue that in court. One of the arguments against these prosecutions by voting rights advocates is that they have a chilling effect on voting, even among people who are eligible to vote. We quoted one of these defendants saying something along the lines of, I want to tell my people, don't vote. They tell you you can vote, but you can't. Don't do it. And, you know, you can read that quote in a couple of different ways. Yeah, okay, if you're not eligible to vote, you shouldn't vote. That's a good thing. Tell the people that you know who aren't eligible not to vote. But voting rights advocates would argue that that is a message to a broader community that would be potentially chilling If you think you're eligible to vote and you are eligible to vote, but you don't want to risk it because you're afraid and then you don't vote, that's the definition of voter suppression. Amy Gardner covers voting and elections for The Post. The North Carolina State Board of Elections is expected to hold a hearing later this month. They'll be reviewing the allegations of fraud in the 9th Congressional District to start to determine whether a new election should be held. 
On Tuesday night, the Democrat responding to Trump's State of the Union address will be Stacey Abrams, the one-time candidate for governor in Georgia. Three weeks ago, I called Stacey Abrams and asked her to deliver the response to the State of the Union. I was very delighted when she agreed. This is an unusual choice for Democratic leadership because last fall, Abrams lost her election. Stacey Abrams on Friday ending her fight to become Georgia's governor as officials look set to declare Republican Brian Kemp as the winner. Even though she did lose that race, she did better than any Democrat running in that state in a statewide election ever. Vanessa Williams reports on politics for The Post, and she points out that Abrams got over 1.9 million votes in that race. That's more than any Democrat running statewide, even presidential candidates. That's more than Barack Obama got. It's more than Hillary Clinton got. And it's certainly way more than the last two Democratic gubernatorial candidates. They tripled turnout by Latinos and Asian Pacific Islanders. They increased youth participation, 18 to 30 year olds, by like 139 percent. So clearly, even though she didn't win, she is able to mobilize and move voters. And I think that for a long time, Democrats have talked about Georgia being in play, a flippable state. In other words, Stacey Abrams is a Democratic unicorn. She ran a campaign that the party could be considering as a potential model for the future. If you look at her background, she knows what working people, middle-class people go through. So, yes, I'm very excited that she's agreed to be the respondent to the president and the State of the Union. So catch us up to speed on who Stacey Abrams is and how she got to this point. She was, until she stepped down to run for governor, the Democratic leader or minority leader of the Georgia State House. She was the first Black woman to hold that position. She is a lawyer by training. She went to Spelman. She got a Yale Law degree. She's a former—I say former, maybe we should say on hiatus—as a writer of romance novels, or as she likes to call them, romantic thrillers. She is the founder of a group called uh, the New Georgia Project, which aimed to register African-American, Latinos, the emerging America, if you will, young voters. And in a large part, that's the coalition that she tapped to help her in November. So what happened in that November race? So she came within 54,000 votes of winning. There was a lot of discussion about voter suppression, efforts by the Secretary of State who was running as a Republican, and had pursued very uh, restrictive policies, if you will. He said he was just trying to ensure the integrity of the election, but critics, including Abrams, said it amounted to voter suppression. People had a hard time registering. If your name didn't perfectly match records in the DMV, if a hyphen was misplaced or an apostrophe, your registration could be put on hold. And there were A lot of irregularities, some of which might have been caused by the overwhelming outpouring of voters for this very historic campaign. But there are also some concerns that some of it was deliberately done to discourage certain voters from being able to participate. And what was surprising, I think, to some people was Stacey Abrams' reaction to that. The day after election, she didn't just say, like, oh, it looks like we're losing. I'm going to go ahead and concede. Like, she really, like, fought to the last moment. I think they 
went for 10 days until she finally decided that maybe she'd exhausted all of her um, reasonable legal avenues, if you will. Uh, and she made what she famously calls a non-concession speech. I acknowledge that former Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be certified as the victor in the 2018 gubernatorial election. But to watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in this state baldly pin his hopes for election on the suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling. So let's be clear, this is not a speech of concession. Because concession means to acknowledge an action is right, true, or proper. As a woman of conscience and faith, I cannot concede that. And she continues to fight. They actually filed a lawsuit against state election officials saying that last November's election was, quote, grossly mismanaged, unquote, and calling for reforms. And, and that is the name of her group. It's called Fair Fight Georgia. Her argument being that every candidate should have a fair fight, a level playing field. So what is Stacey Abrams doing now? Right now, she is engaged in the uh, issues that Fair Fight concerned with. That would be uh, number one, voter suppression. But she's also trying to get people to participate in uh, Medicaid, to sign up for the Affordable Care Act, those who are eligible. That was one of the top issues in her campaign. Last week, she kicked off what she's called a thank you tour in which she'll be visiting cities and towns around Georgia to thank people for supporting her gubernatorial campaign, but it's also seen as a way to keep her supporters energized, to keep her name out there, and to see how much interest there would be in her running next year for the U.S. Senate. The open U.S. Senate seat, Senator David Perdue, will be up for re-election. Some people have said she'd put her hat in a ring for that. But she could also wait until 2022 and have another rematch with Kemp. She repeatedly says that she is going to run for something else one day. She won't say when. <laughs> she won't say what. As a matter of fact, she says she'll make a decision on that by the end of the first quarter of this year. But she is going to run for office again. And some see this tour as a way to uh, sort of prime the pump for that. I think what's really interesting about Stacey Abrams as a choice for the State of the Union response is that oftentimes you see in these moments when a party is like choosing the person to respond to a big speech by the president, it kind of sends a message about either what that party wants to be, what they're trying to be, sometimes what they're worried about. Like you saw two years ago in 2017 after Trump's first address to Congress that they asked the governor of Kentucky to make that speech. You know, a 72-year-old white man who um, had some success with winning over rural white voters. And like that was the thing that Democrats were thinking about right after the 2016 election. And I wonder what you think the choice of Stacey Abrams says about Democrats and what they're thinking right now. There are a lot of people who think that it means that Democrats are recognizing and respecting and embracing the fact that Black women, voters of color generally, but Black women in particular, are the base of the party, that they're loyal and that they deserve to be recognized, taken seriously, and included in the party's decision-making, as well as trying to help it win the White House back. Yeah, I mean, numbers-wise, it is very difficult for a Democrat to win the White House if they don't have the widespread support of Black women voters. That's true. On the other hand, I 
and others wonder, while that works in the primary, the party, I think, is still a little not sure about how to run in a general election. And so people may think that, yes, that's great for energizing the base in the primary. In the general election, uh, the party may still tack toward a white male because then you're not running just, you know, for your base. You're, you've got to convince others to come along in order to get enough to win. So I think it is probably, you know, there's some calculation going on there, but I'm not as convinced as some other people that they've decided, yes, you know, we're all in for black women. Not yet. There's more work to be done. And, and I think Stacey Abrams and other black women active in party politics will tell you the same thing. There's still work to be done. Vanessa Williams is a politics reporter at The Post. And before we go, one more thing. This year, Germany will mark the 30th anniversary of the opening of the border between East and West Berlin, which was a major step toward the fall of the Berlin Wall and with it the end of Germany's communist era. But in a home for seniors in Dresden, a city in the former East part of Germany, that era is making an unlikely comeback. Reporter Louise Beck visited the home to meet its residents. Mrs. Bauer's memories could fill entire libraries. And yet, she can barely recall any of them. Often, she'll begin a sentence sounding sure of herself, but then suddenly, her eyes draw a blank, and she stops. It's as if the rest of the sentence somehow disappeared, and she forgot what she wanted to say. That's pretty common, says the home's director, Günther Wolfram. Most of the residents here have dementia, and forgetting is a constant, lonely, and scary struggle. It leaves a lot of them feeling helpless, so that things like going outside to see a movie or just walking around the block is disorienting for many of them. They're not sure whether they'll find their way back. So a few years ago, Wolfram decided to create an in-house movie theater for the residents. He went all out to decorate it, hung up old movie posters, bought bright red comfy seats, and even a 60s-style motor scooter that was popular in East German times. When the first film premiered, he noticed something. When the residents saw the scooter, their eyes lit up. Instead of sitting down to see the movie, they crowded around it, suddenly sharing memories from the time. So Wolfram bought more old East German objects, inflatable hair dryers and kitchen contraptions like a whipped cream machine. They're uniquely East German, a result of scarcity, communist dreams of efficiency and innovative minds. And it worked. The objects sparked more memories, Worked so well, in fact, that he decided to create entire rooms that resemble those of former East German times. Memory rooms, he called them. 
Imagine retro yellow wallpaper and olive green curtains, vinyl records stacked between radios with these giant dials. In one room, there's even a small shop with rows of empty laundry detergents, sardine, and coffee cans from the time. Wolfram says these objects are meant to evoke emotions, old stories, and sometimes memories of how to do things, how to peel a potato, how to make an egg salad sandwich, that sort of thing. Standing in this room, you realize that for the people living here, East Germany wasn't all Cold War politics and stark gray walls. It was the time when they were in their prime, building things, falling in love, raising families, trying to live normal lives. So the goal of these memory rooms, Wolfram says, isn't to make people believe they're living in the past or to treat their dementia, but for a few moments at least, to give them that sense of ease that comes with remembering. And that's the weird paradox of these memory rooms. It's as if by momentarily stepping into the past, the residents are brought a little closer to the present, or at least they're reminded of what is still lodged somewhere in the unruly pathways of the brain. Luisa Beck is a reporter in the Post's Berlin Bureau. That's it for today's episode. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PostReports. And you can learn more about all the stories in today's show over at WashingtonPost.com slash PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 